All right, if you are with me this morning, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. If you're slow at getting around your Bible, which is not a terrible thing, you might not know where some things in the Bible are yet, just now I'm going to go to the book of James, so you could turn there slowly as well as towards the end of the New Testament, and I'm also going to go to 1 Corinthians, so you could also get a finger in there. So Nehemiah 6, James, and 1 Corinthians, so you can get your fingers in those three places. But what I want to um, emphasize as we start this morning, as we're carrying on through this book of Nehemiah, is that if you would let God work through this series, He wants to practically change your life. I mean that. He really wants to to change us in our daily Christian walk. This This is not a matter of ethereal, philosophical thinking. Where the tacky hits the tar in our Christian life is what changes in our lives. Are you feeling a call of God to action? We've been speaking about it the whole time through Nehemiah. God puts a holy discontent in our hearts, a call to action. And if you go back and look at what we've been doing week on week, this is actually a beautiful process to think through. It's a lens. Nehemiah is a lens that you can say, God, I'm feeling called. And you go and you see how God puts this discontent in someone's heart and then how God teaches us how to plan and put actual practical feet to it and God teaches us how to pray and God teaches us, as Sean was sharing about generosity, that it's going to be costly, that it's going to cost us something. And then when Ollie and Nathan have been speaking about oppression and that we get oppressed and that there's stuff from outside and there's stuff from inside that we've got to deal with. This is helpful when we think about God calling us. Let's not be naive Christians that it's going to be easy and, and walk through the daisies, a little walk through the daisy field. Maybe you're asking God to take you to a new level in your walk with Him. What do you think that's going to look like? Wonderful coffee in the morning. You wake up feeling so refreshed. The babies didn't cry at all the whole night. Temperature's perfect. The fire's already made. Isn't it wonderful to grow in your relationship with Jesus sitting in front of the fire? Is that what it's going to look like? It's going to look like God stirring a holy discontent where you face yourself and you say, this is junk. I've got so much rubbish inside of me. My disciplines are shot through. God, would you change me? There's a holy discontent which starts to grow in our heart. And and then we learn how to pray and we come before God and we plead because we see something of our brokenness. And then we feel opposition. It's called the alarm clock. And we feel it and we don't want to wake up and we feel the winter cold. This is a practical series. It's got practical feet. It's a practical gospel. And this morning, we're going to speak out of Nehemiah 6 from, the title is Ploys and Plots. Nice old English words. Ploys and Plots. Let's read together. Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies, enemies, found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors in the gates. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. When it's called Ono, you should know you shouldn't go there, right? But this plain is 45 kilometers away. But, Nehemiah says, but I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Code for, I don't want to be assassinated. I'm not coming. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand. 
And this is what it said. Right? So every curious person along the route has read this letter. There is a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true, that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. According to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there is a king in Judah. It's Nehemiah. He's our new king. You can be very sure that this report will get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me. I replied, Nehemiah replied, there's no truth in any part of your story. You are making up the whole thing. Then, he, then his commentary goes, they were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued with even greater determination. Later, I went to visit Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the grandson of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. But I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. Remember, O oh my God. All the evil things that Tobiah and Sanballat have done. And remember, Noadiah the prophet and all the prophets like her who have tried to intimidate me. We don't even know what intimidation happens with this Noadiah that he takes before God. It doesn't even record the intimidation from her. That was the level of intimidation going on against Nehemiah. Come on, let's stand together and we're going to pray. That's not the meeting closed. I just get some blood running through our veins. Father, as we come to your word today, we thank you that it still speaks thousands of years later. This is the genius of our God, that he speaks to us through words and stories and what's happened in other men and women's lives. And we can look back, as the New Testament says, we can look back and they are held up as examples for us to follow. Father, this morning in our own hearts, in our own sin, in our own, in our own struggles, in our own attack, in our own ways of processing our world, Father, would you come and change and work in us, Lord? We ask you to do practical, feet-changing work in our hearts, Lord, that we would do differently because of what we've learned about you, Father. Spirit, we invite you. Use your word as an arrow shot into our hearts this morning. Use your word to pierce us, to change us, to cut us to the core. In Jesus' name, amen. You may take your seats again. So here's what we're going to do. It's a very, very simple, simple message this morning. I'm going to tell you about three attacks that we are to expect. Three ways that you can expect to be attacked. And then I want to look at three ways that Nehemiah replies and we're just going to dive straight in and do that. So the first one, 1A, is that we expect an attack on our work. When we've been called to work for God, we are naive to not expect an attack against that work. 
Let's read again. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall and that no gaps remained, although we had not yet set up the doors in the gate. So Sanballat and Geshem sent a message asking me to come to one of the villages in the plain of Onom. So who are these guys? Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Well, we, we're quite familiar with them. If you've been journeying with us through the book of Nehemiah, we've seen these guys cropping up the whole time. This is the same guys in chapter 2, when, when Nehemiah first starts to rebuild the wall, they get very alarmed. And in chapter 2, verse 10, there's this little word that says they were displeased. That is a very tame word for what they were. They were greatly angered to the point that if you remember, Nehemiah and them have to start carrying weapons around because displeased means we're going to come and murder you. That's not normally the way I use the word displeased. But that's Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. That's where we introduced to them. Then we see them begin to actively oppose the building of the wall. They start mocking them. Who are these feeble Jews? They say. They start making humor at their expense. What is this wall that they're building? If a fox ran up on their wall, it would all fall down. They attack their integrity. They say, do you think, what do you think is different about you? For 140 years, this city's been in ruins. How come you think you can change it? What's so special about you? Do you think you can take these burned rubbles, this, this stone from the wall? Do you think that you're going to be able to complete this work in a day? These guys are, are real nasties. But the dangerous thing about these nasties is that they're nasties with power. They're like the playground bullies in the school, but they're not just the playground bullies. They're the big playground bully who can really thump you. He's that guy. You see, we need to remember the context that these guys, Sanballat and the rest of the clan, are the descendants of who? Do you remember, right back in the beginning, we started talking about an Ezra when this exile begins. Do you remember there's a group of people who are so worthless that the Babylonians don't even want to take them into exile? The poor of the poor, the decrepit, the old, they leave them behind. They're not even worth taking. And they leave them behind and they take all the good guys, all the young guys, all the people who are going to work and contribute to their society, they take them off into exile. So what happens to all these losers who are left behind? Well, suddenly they aren't the losers anymore. Suddenly they got land in abundance and they begin to claim the land. Suddenly where they were in abject poverty, they're able to rise through the ranks. And 140 years later, we see that these guys are the head guys of this place. They're the governors. They're the rulers. They're the big playground bullies. And suddenly God begins a work bringing back the exiles from Babylon and Assyria and bringing them back. And what starts to happen? It's not good news. For if you Sanballat and you Tobiah and you Geshem, this is not good news. When first Zerubbabel starts bringing guys back and then Ezra and then Nehemiah. You see, they, they were used to getting their own way. Their family for the last 140 years had got their own way. And their own way looked like this. We're going to worship who we want. Don't you bring your Yahweh and your temple back here. We're going to come into Jerusalem and oppress who we want and take money from whom we want. Don't you come and start telling us that this is your land, that God gave this to you as part of his promise to you and you moved into the promised land. This is our land. We've claimed it. We farm it. We work it. We will oppress you. The worst case scenario for these guys was a rebuilt, beautiful, appealing Jerusalem. 
a safe Jerusalem with a temple where God was worshipped and people in the nations began to hear, the Jews in the nations began to hear, have you heard what God's doing? He's rebuilding Jerusalem. Let's go home. Worst case. Here's what you need to know this morning as we look at this. When the work of God is going forward, it will be one attack after another. We're going to talk about that a little bit. When the work of God is going forward, it will be one attack after another. And I'm not trying to discourage you this morning. I really am aiming to encourage you. But we can't be naive. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem are are figures of the type of attack that we should expect every time we set about the work of God. Every time that you say, God, there's a holy discontent in my heart. I start to pray. I want you to position me. I want to plan. I want to change. You can rest assured there will be attack. Our church, there's a widely held ignorance. There's a widely held ignorance among us, Western believers, that somehow if we are about the Lord's work, if we are trying to change the sin issue in our lives, if we are reaching into the nations, if we're preaching, whatever, if we are about whatever it is, the Lord's work, we think it's a lucky charm around our neck that somehow our children are not going to face any dangers. And somehow we're not going to face disease and trouble and anything else. I remember a conversation um, some years ago, so many of you would be familiar with our background. Peter Howard Brown and Jan Howard Brown led New Gen for 12 years, coming back on an airplane from ministering up in Johannesburg. He had a huge stroke and in a moment was taken out of ministry. In a moment, their family, 52 years old, was thrown into crisis, right? And we walked that road with them. Not even a year later, Jan was diagnosed with what was at that stage terminal cancer. They said, it's terminal, it's melanoma, it's aggressive, it's all through your body. Only by God's grace and by a a trial that she's been on in the last four years has it it abated. And I remember having a conversation with someone, and this was the the tone of of the language. The person said, but they serve Jesus. Their whole lives, these people have poured out their lives to God. How can this be happening is the, is the undertone. Friends, we should expect it. We should know it's coming. We should guard and get ready for it and, and pray, God, protect us. Yes, God can protect us. And yes, God does protect us. But we also live in this world and it's an ignorance to think that somehow when we're doing the God's work that we are immune with this lucky charm around our necks. All of Scripture points the other way. I have, I have no idea what the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel does with, with the execution of 11 disciples. 11 out of 12 is not a good ratio. What do you do with that? How do you, how do you preach wealth, health, prosperity? How do you do it when you read the book of, you know, any of the books, Philippians, <coughs> Colossians, any of the books that Paul wrote, how do you, how do you read them and, and see him saying, I was, I was pressed to death. We were harassed. We were on every side. We, we were shipwrecked. He goes and he lists, he was shipwrecked and beaten and this and this and left for dead. Prosperity! I mean, was, is Joel Osteen suddenly found more faith in these guys? It's so obvious in all of Scripture, and yet it seems so often to be a surprise for us when we face attack, 
Well, he said it so beautifully in his preach a few weeks ago. He says, it's like, it's like we've got this call from God. And we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to the battle. And, we, and he goes into the battlefield. And you're like amazed that people are shooting bullets at you. And you're like, but I'm doing God's work. What's wrong with you? Why are you shooting at me? Point 1A, expect an attack on your work. In fact, I believe it's so clear in Scripture that this is a a pattern that when God works, if you look through history, I can't find a single movement that God has used significantly for fruitfulness in His kingdom which has not been hit with multiple and ongoing attacks. Think about it. I want to even push it a little bit further. I want to say that as a congregation, if we never experience attack, we must ask, are we about the Lord's work? Sobering. If Serve Stellenbosch never experiences attack, are we about the Lord's work? If as a preacher I never experience attack, am I about the Lord's work? If in your workplace you're never criticized for your faith, are you about the Lord's work? Peter Yana, I see you. Peter and Yana at the back. Lunga somewhere. Do you think that the devil's okay with you studying theology? Do you think he's sitting back happy just expect attack? You declare war on your sin habits and you say, God, I want to draw a line in the sand. No more. I don't want the sin in my family. I don't want the sin in my life anymore. I guarantee you, watch for it. It's coming. Expect attack. And I'm not trying to depress you. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to discourage you. Trying to open our eyes. How does Nehemiah reply? 1B. Nehemiah replies by staring down the distraction. He says, but I realized they were plotting. End of verse 2. I realized they were plotting to harm me. So I replied by sending this message to them. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come down. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. If you're going to take one thing from this morning, take this. Okay, this is my family. I'll tell you what this is now. The ears go like this. This is called the focus fox. Have you ever seen the focus fox? Anyone? Anyone anyone else's family? I see Natasha nodding. Thank you. I got one in the house. This is called the focus fox. This Nehemiah has a focus fox. When when you're getting distracted and all sorts of other things, my family would say, no, 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 focus fox. Stay on, stay on course. Stay on course. Look at what he says. I am engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? In other words, what, what could you possibly want from me that's more important than what I'm doing right now? Completely focused, staring down the distraction. Because when these attacks come, man, we can entertain it. We can feel so sorry for ourselves. This is so tough. Or maybe we think, maybe these guys have got some good information there on the plane of Ono. Maybe they're being friendly. Maybe I should go. Maybe this is a good thing. Nehemiah point blank refuses to be distracted. Friends, this is how this plays out scripturally. Do you know that the devil knows where you are uniquely weak? You personally Gordon Reed, he knows. Paul Hodgson, he knows where I am uniquely weak. The specifics of what will prove most distracting to my life. 
He knows that. Turn with me now if you've been looking for James and you haven't found it. It's about time to stop. Ask the person next to you. Go to James chapter 1 and verse 14. This is what James, the brother of Jesus, writing to the early believers, this is what he says. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So not only is the devil tailor-making things against us, it's even my own desires working against me. This verse is why I don't walk into Woolworths and struggle to, to steal something. To, I don't struggle not to steal something, right? Because I don't, I don't struggle with that. It's not a desire within my heart to take a, a lunch bar and put it under my shirt and walk out of Woolies because I haven't struggled with kleptomania, but someone else legitimately might have. But I struggle when I'm walking down the street in Stellenbosch and people wear way too few clothes in this town. And I've got to walk down the street and they're all over the place and I've got to keep my eyes and I make a, a pledge like Solomon and say I'll keep my eyes straight ahead of me or even better just like clothes and walk into lampposts. So each of us are tempted by what the desires within our own hearts. Those desires give birth and bring forth death. It's tailor-made for us. These distractions. But now while that's going on, and now you might be feeling really like Paul is discouraging us and discouraging us. Here's where I want to start encouraging you. While that's going on, while the devil is uniquely trying to find cracks in our armor, while our own desires are working against us, look at what 1 Corinthians, if your finger's there, go there, 1 Corinthians 10, a verse worth memorizing. If you want to memorize a verse, this is one of the ones that is so powerful. To memorize. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12. So if you think you are standing firm, watch out. Be careful. Some of the versions say that you don't fall. And then I love this. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. What does that mean? That means there's moments, Jeffrey, where you think that you're the only person in the whole world going through what you're going through. You think there's a, you're the only person. God, this is, this is so hard. I don't know if I can bear this. And this verse is such comfort to me. Nothing has happened to me which isn't common that, that's with everybody else. There's a whole lot of people in the world who are going through exactly what I'm going through. And then listen to probably one of my most, my most favorite scriptures in the whole of the Word of God. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So just as the evil one is uniquely busy putting together a plan to take you out, so God is uniquely saying Paul can only cope with that much. Gordon can cope with that much. Elena can cope with that much. But Paul can only cope with this much. And God is, look, it's beautiful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, who will provide a way out? He will provide the way out that you may stand up under it. Now that's a verse worth knowing. It's beautiful. Tailor-made trials. Tailor-made faithfulness of God in our trials. The next two are much shorter. <laughs> what I want you to take from that, Nehemiah had to trust his work to God. Nehemiah had to trust his work to God. Number two, 
2A. The second expect an attack is this. Expect an attack on your reputation. On your reputation. It's going to get personal. The fifth time, Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand. And this is what it said. This, this passage, this little section is an absolute shocker. It's character annihilation 101. It is an absolute shocker when you begin to dig into it and see what they're doing. Geshem, he says, he says Geshem tells me it's true. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true. Geshem is the chief of the Arabians who are very, very closely allied with the Persians. So what he's saying is, the guys who, the king who sent you, the Persian king who sent you, he's going to find out because Geshem, who's one of his cronies, one of his close buddies, he's the one who's telling us this thing about you. That's what he's doing in that moment. He's saying word is getting back to the Persians. He says, according to his reports, you plan to be their king. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to proclaim about you. Look, there is a king in Judah. Now cast your mind back to Artaxerxes, the king of the Persians. He's the guy who released Nehemiah, remember? He's the guy who was generous to Nehemiah, who was gracious to him, who opened his hand and said, take what you need. We're going to build this temple. We're going to have Jerusalem. Here they come and they attack it and they say, we're going to go and tell him that you're trying to be king. Treason! You're going to be the new king. My goodness, I would have been so tempted in that moment to pack my tools and head back to the powerful king, the most powerful king in the world, to go and tell him that what they were saying was a lie. And just in case there was any doubt in Nehemiah's mind, they remind him at the end of that passage, you can be very sure that this report will get back to the king. So I suggest that you come and talk it over with me says Sanballat. Sanballat's solution? Come, come talk it over with me. It's this pretense of friendliness. Reminds me of the devil in the garden, right? Come, let's reason. Come, let's talk. Did God really say? Did God really say that, Eve? See, there's, there's, a, sh- there's a focus shift in, in this passage of Nehemiah. There's a focus shift in the book because all the time up until now, it's been, about, it's been about Sanballat and Tobiah and the opposition has been against who? Israel. It's been against the whole lot of them. What happens in this passage is it gets intensely personal. Michael Eaton says this, if the enemy fails to ruin the community, he concentrates on God's leaders. If he fails to prevent the walls from being built, he goes on to attack the next step, the building of the gates. And since these guys can't intimidate the community of people, they want to assassinate the leader of the work. What does he do? What's his reply? I called it calm integrity. He replies to be with calm integrity. Here's where we need so much wisdom, Christians, because everything in our hearts wants to leap up in our own defense, doesn't it? That's our default setting. When do we reply? When are we quiet? When do we defend ourselves? When don't we? For for some of us, it may even surprise us that Nehemiah replies, but he does. It's important to remember it's the fifth time. 
It's helpful to remember that he doesn't just lash out and hurt the first time that this accusation comes against him. Four times he lets them accuse him. Only on the fifth time. There's a little lesson in there for me that sometimes as believers, always, always as believers, we are called to be gracious. But that doesn't mean gullible. That doesn't mean gullible. Nehemiah replies, there's no truth in any part of your story. You're making up the whole thing. Just calm, facts, integrity, no truth to it. And then he commentates, they were trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued the work with even greater determination. Do you know what I would have done? (laughs) I would have called a meeting. I would have traced where that courier had gone with that letter on a map in my bedroom. And I would have gone and tried to get everybody who had read that open letter, every curious Charlie who had opened it and read that open letter, and I would have had a big meeting to explain why it was wrong. I would have furiously either written letters to the king Artaxerxes or I would have got on a horse and got there as fast as I could. See, Nehemiah had to trust his work to God and then Nehemiah had to trust his reputation to God. He has a clear conscience. He has a clear understanding of the attack, what it is the evil one's trying to do, what it is these guys are trying to do to him. And the best part is that he lets it deeply motivate him instead of the the it's like the counter of what they're trying to do these guys are trying to oppress him it's it's like that there's a beautiful phrase which says the the church has the church has sprung up upon the caesars how does it go the church is anyone know that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs thank you the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. And the more that they've tried to kill and oppress and, and murder Christians, the more the church has sprung up. And the more they try to attack him and intimidate him, the more strengthened he becomes. In our weakness, he is strong. This is what we're seeing in action. And he takes it as a great endorsement of his work. He's like, they're attacking even harder. We must be getting close. Another little take, take out of this section that I want to unashamedly ask for this morning. 1 Timothy 2 says, pray for your leaders. Can I, can I with humility in our hearts beg you to pray for our leaders in this country? In South Africa, man, if our leaders ever needed prayer, they need it now. We need to pray. We need to have less conversations where we're bickering and moaning about our leadership and about corruption. We need to lead, read less of the books and we need to have less of the bright conversations and we need to find ourselves on our face saying, God, please help. Can I ask you to pray for us as church leaders, your life group leaders, myself, our families, those people that, are, that God has placed in leadership in this congregation, in other congregations, see us and his wife in, in Shofar, Byron the Baptist and Jen in the Baptist church, Mark and Marion at Every Nation, Adrian and Antoinette at Cedars, Tony and his wife at the Presbyterian church. We, we're hanging out with these guys. These guys are on the front lines. Can we pray for them? Can we pray for them? What about some of our business leaders? Those who are making decisions day by day in a business realm. I think of, I think of Shauno. I think of CJ. I think of you guys. I think of Marley. I think of Donnie. I see you there. The guys that are, that are at the forefront of some of our businesses, they're being attacked. It's not easy to be a faith-filled businessman. 
I think of Natasha faithfully leading praying wives. And we're praying. We're standing in the gap for our husbands. We're saying, God, these men, they lead our homes. You've called them to lead our homes. We're going to stand and we're going to pray. Third and lastly, I believe we need to expect an attack that comes in disguise. The final bit of the story, do you need to stand up? Are you okay? I'm fine, but I'm standing up. Dylan and Kat, yeah, it's good to have you guys, eh? We miss you. My kids miss you a lot. The final attack is this, this is the third one, is this odd story about Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the grandson of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the doors shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. Verse 12, I realized that God had not spoken to him, but that he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. See, Shemaiah claims to be a prophet. And in his claim to be a prophet, he prophesies a fairly obvious prophecy. They're coming to kill you. It's quite believable, actually. They've been after him for months. And now he says, I've got a prophecy. God says that tonight they're coming and they're going to kill you. This is what you need to do. Run to the temple. Hide in the temple. It's illegal for them to kill you there. If you go and read, you'll see that they couldn't kill someone in the temple. It's a place where they would run to for refuge. But what he omits to say is that it's also illegal for Nehemiah as a layman to go into the temple and to lock himself in. So when Nehemiah says, they were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin, it doesn't make obvious sense. Why would that be a sin, to go to the temple? Isn't it good to go to the temple? What he realizes, he says, then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. And so if Nehemiah had done what this guy suggested, this inverted commas prophet had suggested, he would have defiled himself, broken the law, and had a charge of cowardice laid against his leadership by the people of Israel. But it's an attack in disguise. It's not obvious. I'm a prophet. And this guy uses a fear, intimidation, a very plausible, credible threat. How do you think Nehemiah slept that night? Even though in his heart he's saying, Lord, I think this guy's not a prophet. I think this is not true. I think this is a lie. He wrote that afterwards when it's very clear. But in that moment, on that day, when the guy says, tonight there's an assassination plot, God prophesies it. They're coming to your bedroom. I don't reckon I would have slept so well. How does Nehemiah reply? 3b, he replies with an alertness. If ever there was an age where the church needs to be an alert, even with prophecy, how much is being said in the name of Jesus Christ, which is absolute tripe and onions? How much is being said in the name of Jesus around the nations, which is misleading, taking people away from God? See, not, Nehemiah doesn't accept anything without thought and consideration. And I, it doesn't say it, but I'd bet my bottom dollar with prayer because you've seen him to be a man of prayer. Why should he run away, he thinks? It goes against everything God has been saying and every 
way that he has been leading me up to this point. It makes no sense in terms of what God is doing that suddenly God would fail him now. Number one, Nehemiah had to trust his work to God. Number two, Nehemiah had to trust his reputation to God. Number three, Nehemiah had to trust his very life to God. Does this remind you of anybody else? Who else had to trust his work to God? Who else had to trust his reputation to God while it was lying in tatters around him and was silent as a lamb instead of defending himself? Who else had to trust his very life and soul to God? Jesus. Again, we see Nehemiah. We see a Jesus foreshadow. I forgot to tell you, those of you who are slow to go there in your Bibles, 1 Peter 2, go there. I want to show you, and we're going to close with this verse. Trust his work to God. Trust his reputation to God. Trust his life to God. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For the sake of time, let me read it. It will come up on the screen behind me. How powerful is this? For God called you to do good work. Just say with me, God called me to do good work. God called me to do good work. Now, some of you didn't say it. You've got to say it again. God called me to do good work. Even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you. Sure, Lord. I'm not so sure I'm excited about that holy discontent anymore. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. This is what I've been banging on about this morning. Expect attack. It happened to Jesus. He is our example. He is our model. But how did he reply? Look how Jesus replied. Yet, verse 22, he never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. God, I leave my work in your hands. God, I leave my reputation in your hands. God, I leave my life in your hands, because Jesus did, so I know that I can too. And because he was attacked, how do we get to reply? How do you get to reply because Jesus was attacked? Verse 24, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. He was attacked, carried our sins in his body on the cross. How do we reply? So that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Isn't it beautiful? How was he attacked? By his wounds. Physical scarring upon his body, beating his body. What happens to us? How do we reply? You are healed. This is Isaiah 53. You are healed by his wounds. What happens to Christ once? You were like sheep who wandered away. Christ, the perfect lamb, the exodus lamb, the slain lamb, the blood upon the door lamb. Once we were like sheep who wandered away. Now, you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your soul. Isn't this an amazing gospel? Isn't this a beautiful Jesus? I'm so grateful that he doesn't just say, Paul, good luck. 
I hope you make it. I hope you get to the top of that ladder you're trying to climb. I hope your, your morality gets you there. I hope your law-keeping gets you there. I'm so grateful that he says, Paul, I've come down. I've done it. I've shown you the way. I've set you an example. And just as I suffered, you're going to suffer, but it's okay. You're going to make it. So what we're going to do is we're going to take communion.